I decided to release Rebecca's podcast today because Valentine's Day is on Sunday. In addition to Rebecca's story being about losing her mom to Alzheimer's, it also includes the love story of her parents. Rebecca says in her own words that their love is a wonder to witness. So enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. I'm your host, Beth Gosho, and with me today is Rebecca, although I just found out she prefers to be called Becca. Um, Becca and I are connected only through uh, social media and online platforms, but a, a couple weeks ago I asked if anyone would be willing to share their story um, of their mom, of losing their mom, and Becca reached out to me, and I'm so thankful that she did because she has a different kind of story, and I have um, mentioned this before in some of my videos and recordings that Daughters Without Moms doesn't just have to mean that you're, you've lost your mom due to death. There's also daughters who don't have relationships with their moms because the mom was emotionally or you know mentally unable to be a mom. There's all kinds of situations that have kept um, the daughter and mom role from being a relationship. So um, Becca has one of those stories for us today. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm happy to welcome her to the podcast and I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her and then She's going to dive into her story. Take it away, Becca. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, my story is a bit different. I have lost my mom to Alzheimer's. So I am going to kind of tell our story as mother and daughter and then kind of share how that has shifted in the years since she was diagnosed in um, 2013. So I have to say that I have probably... Comparatively speaking, I had an idyllic childhood. I grew up in rural Iowa on a farm. Um, I grew up just miles away from both sets of grandparents. Um, they were always around. Family was all of around. Was always around. Um, if you are familiar with small town living, um, everybody knows everybody's business. You know, it's hard to get into trouble because word will always get back to your parents. Um, my, they were living in the place where they grew up. Um, my mom was the youngest of four sisters. Um, if you're familiar with the old Lawrence Welk show, the Lennon sisters would come on and sing, and that was my mom and her sisters. My mm. grandmother was a piano teacher. Um, they all sang, they all played the piano. Um, they all became teachers themselves, um, which then led to me eventually becoming a teacher. But my mom was um, an elementary school teacher until she stayed home to be a stay-at-home mom and a farm wife. Um, and even though she wasn't working outside of the home for pay, she was a tireless volunteer. She worked um, for our library and helping, you know, add on an addition to our library. She was a force when our school wanted to pass, pass a bond issue to build a new school. Like she was a head volunteer. Um, she was just kind of a force of nature. And thankfully for me, um, that helped save my life. I was born um, at around 30 weeks in January of 1975. And I was born in the middle of one of the largest blizzards to ever hit Iowa. And because I was a preemie, um, they had to get to the hospital that had just recently opened a NICU. So my mom, um, at that day and age, you didn't go to an OBGYN. She went to her family doctor and he was like, if this baby is gonna survive, you've gotta to get to the hospital. So she and my dad found a way to get to the hospital. And I was born January 10th of 1975 and was in the hospital for about a month before I got to come home on Valentine's day um, to, I had an older brother at the time. He's two years older than me. And then eventually we, I had a younger brother. So I'm the only girl, which I think kind of factors into my story down the road but um, she was just a force of nature. Um, she was kind of, it's very interesting to say, she was very um, socially liberal, which in their corner of Iowa was pretty rare. It's kind of a conservative area. And so she kind of raised all of us to be very tolerant, very accepting um, of social issues. And yet it's kind of funny. She's kind of a, a walking contradiction because at the same time, in our family, um, she was very, very conservative. No drinking, no 
alcohol, you know, like very strong feelings about things like premarital sex and you should know who you're going to marry. And so we had a really, you know, probably traditional relationship in most terms. Um, when I got to be a teenager, it got to be pretty combative. And I, that's pretty common with teenage girls and their, um, their moms. Um, but I watched her deal with some things like um, both of her parents um, died of cancer within months of each other in 1991. I was uh, so, a junior in high school, I believe, when all of that happened. And um, I was kind of able to escape because I could drive and I could, I put, I was in every activity. That's the other great thing about small town schools. I was in every single activity. Um, under the sun. So I was never home. So that kind of helped alleviate some of the tension between us because I just wasn't home enough for us to argue. Because when I was home, we were we were arguing. Mm -hmm. um, after her parents passed away, um, I watched her deal with depression. Um, she had gone back to work after being at home for all those years. When I was in high school, she tried to go back and teach again. And the combination of losing her parents and I'm sure there were other factors that now as an adult, looking back, I didn't know what they were, um, you know, whether it was, you know, just, you know, the small town life or whatever, I don't know, but she dealt with a pretty severe depression where she couldn't get out of bed for a couple months. And then finally, you know, she got some medication and went to the doctor and I don't know if she was seeing a therapist or not, but eventually, you know, she kind of came out of it. Um, but we were just like oil and water. Like I remember my dad, you know, just certain things like shopping for a prom dress, we'd just be screaming at each other and things that I thought were not risque, she did. And my dad was finally like, if you could just agree on a dress, I don't care how much it costs, just buy a dress. Um, and just, there were, there were lots of things looking back now where I felt like it was the expectation of her because our family was so well known and it's a small town. And looking back at, you know, at 46, were those pressures from her or were they imagined in my head? I'm not really sure anymore, but I felt it at the time that it was coming from her. And, you know, like she was the church choir director. So it's prom night and all my other friends are sleeping in the day after prom. And I have to go to church and sing in the choir. And even all my high school teachers are like, why are you here? And I'm like, because my mom made me. Like, it was, <laughs> I just felt like I had no ch choice in a lot of things um, because of her involvement in everything across the community. Um, so I went to college and I had oh, a bit of a rebellious streak. Like I drank a little. And that was one thing like that was absolutely taboo. You did not drink in front of my mom. You didn't drink with my mom. She told my dad when they got married that she would not marry him if he ever drank. And so like, thankfully I went to college and didn't totally go off the rails because there, I had no um, frame of reference that you could drink like a normal person and not drink just totally to get wasted. Um, so I went to college, I, I had a little bit of rebellion. Um, one thing my mom would never let me do in high school was like go to the tanning booth because her father had died of melanoma skin cancer. And so like, I, I remember in college, I was like, I'm gonna go to the tanning booth. And I went a couple of times and I was like, I just felt like I was baking myself. I smelled funny, like I didn't even tan very well. And then I realized that that was just stupid. I'm like, okay, I hate to say it, but she's probably right about this. I don't need to go tanning. Um, and one, one of the reasons I met my husband um, in my sophomore year of college around Halloween, and we were engaged the next May, and she was not happy. Like she, and she herself had uh, like married and gotten engaged as a, you know, fairly young. She and my dad were a year apart in high school and started dating at the end of their high school career and then married as soon as she was done with college and he had a year left. So I don't know if part of that looking back is her wanting more for me than making those decisions so early on in life. But, you know, like one of the reasons I, I mean, I love my husband for a lot of reasons, but he was the first person in my life who ever stood up to her. Like my dad wouldn't do it. My brothers wouldn't do it. Like he was the, and I remember being like, oh, 
I didn't know you could like, you could talk back to her like that. You could like state your opinion. And so it, it, we actually moved our um, wedding up. I graduated from college in three and a half years so that we could get married. And we ended up with a December wedding, which was beautiful, but like, she was so upset about this wedding and that we had moved it up. And um, it was just, you know, it was, we kind of were walking on eggshells for, from like the time I was probably 12 or 13 until, I don't know, probably we moved, we had to move away from my husband's job in um, 2007. So I think I was 32 and we still were kind of walking on eggshells. It helped. Um, I had my kids fairly young. So I was around, let's see, 23 and 25 when I had my daughter and my son. And my parents babysat for us because we lived close to them still in the small town and um, we paid them to watch our kids, but it was just, I had to go back to work when my daughter was four weeks because I didn't have maternity leave. It was my first teaching job. Wow. And to leave your four week old, like you need to leave them with someone that you trust and you know, loves them just as much as you do. So my mom babysat for us and uh, my dad's still a farmer. So he was home a lot too. So the two of them, you know, would take our kids into the coffee shop for coffee with all of the, you know, that the whole town was there. <laughs> and, um, but it was still kind of tenuous. There was still a lot of um, kind of just walking on eggshells. And she was always one of those people who could, would kind of say things kind of backhanded or um, like at one point we were living there or I don't know where we were living but you know she since she was not into alcohol she said something like I guess I'll just have to come to terms with the fact that all my kids drink alcohol <laughs> and it was so dramatic and I was like yes we do but we're still productive members of society and we have good jobs and we volunteer like it's just one little piece of who we are so it was always still kind of tenuous. And in 2007, we had to move to Wisconsin from Iowa for my husband's job. And at the time, I did not want to move. I had lived there my whole life. I, I mean, it's a very beautiful area. I love the wide open spaces, like it's just home. And we moved to Wisconsin. And I, it's hard to describe, like, it was difficult and it was especially difficult because we found out in probably February or March that we were moving um, and my husband had to start working there, but the kids and I stayed and sold our house and we didn't leave till June and the three months of the drama for my mom that we were leaving mm. because in her family, she was the only daughter that stayed close geographically to her parents. The other daughters didn't move super far away. Like the farthest one was four hours away. So I don't know, you know, I was the first one in, in my immediate family to branch out. My brothers are still there and still living there. And, but it felt almost like a vacation when I moved away. And it was like, suddenly I didn't have the whole weight of like my family's history on me. And even though we kind of moved to a small town area, I didn't know everybody's past history. Mm -hmm. And so it would, in on one sense, it was freeing um, in a way that I couldn't have imagined. And I missed my parents, I missed them terribly. And I always told my husband, it was a seven and a half hour drive and about halfway, I would get really ragey because I'd realized I still had so much time left to go in the car, but it was um, still amazing to kind of break free and get the chance to be my own person without all of that history. And so we kind of settled into a routine then where my parents would come and visit and um, we'd get along, we'd start, you know, like I think that distance kind of helped um, where we would talk once or twice a week on the phone, but I wasn't constantly kind of hearing commentary on every single thing that I did or every decision that I made because, you know, either she wasn't privy to it or she couldn't hear about it from somebody else in the neighborhood or, you know, at church or what have you. So that was kind of just freeing for me. Mm -hmm. And so um, we'd go home for every holiday. Um, my parent, my husband is not particularly close with his family. So we, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, um, okay. we would head home. And I think it was around probably 2010 or 2011, 
my brother, my younger brother called or texted me, I don't remember which, and he said, I was before a visit, and he said, you know, I think you need to kind of pay attention to mom when you're home. He said, something's not right. Um, she's kind of forgetting words when she's talking and she just can't seem to think of the right word. And so, you know, of course, like my, you know, your antenna go up and you're like, okay, okay, I will definitely pay attention to that. So I went home and definitely noticed that um, something was not right. And I, I, it's so hard because I don't remember a lot of that, those early days, because what's fresh is, you know, what we've been going through the last couple of years. But I remember thinking, you know, I think you need to go to the doctor. And so small town, Iowa, they went to their little, um, little, you know, family practitioner who, mm-hmm. you know, deals with everything. And looking back, I'm not a hundred percent sure how transparent they were with the doctor because of the dynamic of my mom always kind of having the last word. My dad would never, and even now, even when she's not cognizant, he won't really talk about her condition in front of her with Mm -hmm. her in the room. And Mm -hmm. so if the doctor was asking questions about her, I don't know that they were getting honest responses from either my mom, who was probably, you know, had some denial and my dad who wouldn't speak the truth. So um, it took them a little while. Eventually they got a referral to a neurologist in um, the medium-sized town (laughs) next to where they live. And um, I remember they were going for a few different tests and her original diagnosis was sleep apnea. And um, an interesting fact about my mom, why I'm not sure, we aren't 100% sure about her diagnosis. She only, um, she was born with one full lung. She has a second lung, but it's like a partial lobe and it doesn't, you know, doesn't move air very well. And she realized that I think when she was a teenager, um, they discovered that because she would get out of breath very easily compared to her peers. And they did some investigating and realized she had only been born with one full lung. So um, they went to see this neurologist who basically said, I think it's sleep apnea. Here's a CPAP machine. You're good. I don't need to see you anymore. And I remember my parents were so relieved, you know, like they, it's just sleep apnea. It's just sleep apnea. You know, we're good. We have this machine now. And I remember in my head thinking the neurologist, the neurologist should want to see you again, even just to follow up with you on what's going on. But my parents were all good. Like that was the answer. It was just sleep apnea. And so after a couple of years with the CPAP machine, um, it became very clear to me that things were not stable. You know, she was continuing to decline. And I was, because I lived far away, um, it was so unique. I would go home and I would see things that my brothers, because they lived close and they just popped in for visits where I was going and spending the night and I was there 24 seven, you know, I would kind of, I'd be there and my brothers, would, I'd be texting them. I'm like, did you know mom can't write anymore? Or did you know that this is hard for her? And of course they were like, oh no, we never noticed. And so I think part of that is just being the daughter and then also being a mom. And you're just kind of laser focused on, and I was seeing everything with new eyes. Every time I would go back, I would see something um, new. So then I was pretty much the heavy at this point. Like I had to be the one to go in and kind of say, you know, I think maybe we need a second opinion. And so then we ended up going to an even bigger city um, where there was a university that was, um, had a medical center and a full geriatric unit. And so that was around the beginning of 2013. Um, She went for an evaluation with this geriatric clinic and it was June of 2013 that, they were going to give my parents the report. So my mom and dad asked um, us to come out and to go with them to Omaha, which was the city they were going to. And so we took the whole family. And I remember now my kids were um, 13 and 14, 15-ish. And they sat in the in the waiting room. And my husband and I went in with my mom and dad. And the doctors pretty much laid out that it was Alzheimer's or related dementia. They can't say for sure, you know, they, but they, I think they said maybe with 
95% accuracy, you know, like we're 95% sure this is Alzheimer's or dementia. And, you know, they, they were saying things like, you know, her reaction time was already affected. Her speech was the first thing that was affected. So by this point, she was already pretty impaired when it came to her speech. Um, they said she shouldn't be driving. And I just remember my dad sitting at the table and the first thing he said kind of to himself rather than anybody really, he just kind of said, well, there goes, there goes those happy golden years that he had been thinking of for their retirement and all of those things. And then he looked at me, he turned to me and he said, you can't let this change how you live your life, which I don't really know what he meant by that. If he thought that we were going to just somehow be able to like leave our life and come back home, which, you know, in reality, that is not how things work. So um, it was just one of those things where I just remember sitting at the table and, you know, you have all these things going through your head and it was a 90 minute drive then back to their house from the city. And I remember my son um, who has ADHD, he looked at me and he's like, mom, I'll, I'll give grandma my ADHD medication if it'll help fix her brain. And like your heart is just kind of breaking at that point. Um, and I would say probably that that is the moment where things kind of shifted. And I kind of took on the role of mom versus being the daughter mm -hmm. and it kind of flipped. Um, it was really, my mom and dad were still in denial pretty hard for a year or two. He was still letting her drive and do some things that I, you know, the doctors had said, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't be doing that. Um, I had to be the one to call my mom's sisters and my dad's siblings to tell them because like, I just don't think my parents could speak the words. They couldn't. And even in church, like we went to church that same weekend and like when they asked for prayer concerns, my dad, all he could say was, well, we didn't get, we didn't get the news we were hoping for. It's like, he couldn't say out loud that she had dementia or Alzheimer's, um, which is so, it's so strange to me, I guess, because we saw so many people in our family, you know, pass from cancer. Like if you had told us it was cancer, we'd all be like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. We know how to deal with cancer, but because it's mm -hmm. Alzheimer's and it's your brain, there's just kind of this stigma that none of us knew how to handle or deal with. Mm -hmm. And, um, when you have cancer, people show up at your house with casseroles and baked goods. And, mm -hmm. and so I think too, that was really isolating more so for my dad, because once he became the caretaker, he just, you know, people didn't really know what to do to help. So I think they just didn't do much of anything. Um, so they were still holding out hope at this point that it was not Alzheimer's or dementia. You know, my mom would very forcefully say, well, there's a, you know, there's a 10% chance that it's not Alzheimer's mm -hmm. or dementia. And I think mm -hmm. at that point, he was also letting my mom make the decisions about her medication and her care. And so she tapered off some medications that probably she shouldn't have, but, you know, he was letting her still make those decisions and have that agency and make the choice. So, and honestly, those first couple of years were the hardest because emotionally she knew what was happening to her and she could get frustrated by it. And I'd never wanted to wish time away, but it was a blessing um, when it got to the point where she didn't realize what was happening anymore. You know, she was just happy. And thankfully it didn't change too much of her personality. She was, she didn't get combative. She was still happy, um, but it was definitely, hard and I don't really remember like I wish I could remember the last mother-daughter conversation we had where I was able to ask her for advice or like even just something with shopping like what do you think of this and and so it was just it's one of those things where sometimes when you have a more sudden disease or you have something that you know the progression and how it's going to go or you know it's the last time you're having a conversation but like I just don't remember I wish I could mm -hmm. but I don't and to this day like we still wonder about her diagnosis because is it was it some kind of brain damage from only having one lung and a lack of oxygen mm -hmm. over the course of her lifetime 
-hmm. And so like she was still able to like react to things that would require some cognition or, you know, like sometimes I would say, I think it was 2019. It was the last Mother's Day. She was at home. I was able to go back for a visit and my dad was in the field planting corn or beans and we're just sitting, you know, in their living room and rocking away in the recliners. And it was so hard to have a conversation with her. You just pretty much had to talk and there was no react. I mean, sometimes there was no reaction from her, but this particular day, I just was talking. I said, oh, mom, you were the best mom. You know, you're the best mama ever. And I could look and there's a tear trailing down her face. So I knew that she got, she was getting something from my words. And about that time too, she would always find a cube with my picture of when I was a baby. And when I was there visiting, she would bring me the cube and she would point to it. So I knew she knew who I was. She couldn't say, I mean, it's probably been, oh gosh, at least four years since I've heard her say my name because she just, you know, my dad would try to cue her and be like, oh, look, Becca's here. And she'd smile and do, you know, kind of do the things that she thought she was supposed to do, but she couldn't spontaneously um, come up with my name. And so my dad cared for her on his own for seven years. And that too was kind of, again, I had to be the heavy um, because he's a farmer. He was at home almost all the time. Um, but that also meant they were really isolated. And so he, um, and it's just it's interesting because he took care of everything. He bathed her, he toileted her, he dressed her without any help. He never had a nurse come in to help. Um, at one point when we knew he shouldn't be leaving your home alone, um, a sweet lady from church who lived just down their gravel road volunteered to come and stay with my mom the times when he needed it. And in some ways, I mean, it was wonderful because he could get away to grocery shop or um, do other things, but he was still hesitant to call her and ask for help. And I was like, dad, you don't need permission to call Debbie and have her come over. You can just have her come over. And so she was wonderful and she helped mm -hmm. um, him be able to keep her at home longer. And it got to the point in the fall of 2019 where I could see the toll it was taking on him. And, you know, he would mention in pass passing that his back hurt or, you know, something, you know, he was hurting or, you know, this was a struggle. And I think once he started talking a little bit more about the struggle, I knew that maybe he was getting to the point of being ready to hear about options. And so um, I sent him a letter and it was funny because I don't know why I chose to do a letter, but I was like, I just need to get all this out. And um, I just said, dad, you've taken care of her long enough. And of course my brothers are always like, it has to come from you. He doesn't listen to us. It has to come from you, which I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> I, but I guess there is that daughter, father daughter um, bond. But I just, I sent the letter and I said, it's time to let someone else take care of her. Mm -hmm. You know, you've done it for so long. You know, you've made it longer than any of the other um, and I don't, I hate to say this, but none of the other farmers in, you know, would be taking care of their wives. They would have hired someone, They would, but like their love is just so, I mean, it's just, it's a wonder to, to witness, but at the same time, it's like, okay, it's time. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I emailed this letter, I wrote it all out and he ended up calling me and he's like, I sent your letter to Debbie, who's the caretaker. And I was like, oh, you did? <laughs> And looking back, I realized he couldn't bring himself to have the conversation. He couldn't bring it up himself because I was honestly worried that my dad would leave my mom with this woman who's in her sixties as well, you know, like an older woman who's not trained medically. And I was worried if my mom fell, not only would Debbie get hurt, but then she'd feel guilty for mm -hmm. it happening while she was, and I'm like, dad, that's a lot to ask of someone who's just coming, you know, out of the goodness of their heart. And so that kind of opened the door. And that was, I think, in fall of 2019. And so he said he wanted one last holiday season um, all together. And so we had Thanksgiving, which is just our family is not normal. My mom's family has been meeting on their farm since the 1940s, all of her cousins, aunts, uncles, and we've continued the tradition. And so now like the last five, 10 years, I've been in charge of Thanksgiving for like 60 people on their farm 
And so it was really bittersweet, you know, because, you know, my dad asked somebody to say grace and, you know, everybody's crying because they know it's my mom's last Thanksgiving at home. And then we made it through Christmas of 2019. And my dad didn't want to put her into the nursing home the day after Christmas. So we ended up um, going in on the 27th of 2019. And so she's been in the nursing home since then. Um, and then COVID hit, which has just been quite um, an experience. So my dad was still going to see her three to four hours every day and just spending time with her and then COVID hit. And so it's just been, in one way, I think it's helped him separate a little bit once the nursing home opens back up, maybe he'll feel a little more comfortable um, not spending five hours there every day. I don't know, maybe he will, I'm not sure, but um, it's just, it's such an interesting dynamic, losing someone to an illness like Alzheimer's. Um, and I think it's really interesting how when someone gets sick, you want to immediately gloss over the rough parts and you have a tendency to kind of like turn them into a saint and like my mom is perfect and I love I mean I love her immensely but our relationship was so complicated for so many years with you know lots of love but also lots of animosity and um back and forth and so it's just interesting how when somebody gets sick all of a sudden you kind of just want to forget that part and yet sometimes yeah. you're still reminded that, you know, it was complicated and they're still the same complex person I knew all of my life. They're just sick. Um, mm -hmm. So I think too, it's hard to watch um, like your kids grieve their relationship with someone with Alzheimer's. That's another whole thing that I probably looking back now that my kids are 20 and 22, like I'm not sure I address that enough. Um, I don't feel like, I think I was more internally focused on my grief and not so much that they were also losing a relationship with somebody that they loved. So, you know, I probably should talk to them about that at some point. Mm -hmm. They're adults mm -hmm. and we live in Ohio now and they live in Wisconsin, but um, yeah, it's just been an interesting journey. I say Alzheimer's is like getting on a train and realizing you got on the wrong train and you're going someplace you never wanted to go. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And you just have to, you just have to go for the journey and, and see where it takes you, so. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow, wow. I'm so glad that you're bringing this to light because I think a lot of people are gonna connect with what you're saying. Um, and you're right, I, I went with for cancer with my mom and my sister and people show up with casseroles and this and that and know how to deal with it. Um, and Alzheimer's, I think you're right. I don't know if people, uh, you said you felt, or the, you know, that it was isolating and perhaps stigmatized a little bit. Um, so we should do a better job of figuring out how to support people who are on this journey because it still is loss. Um, not in the same way, but it still is loss. And so I'm really, really thankful that you're bringing this to light. Um, one of the things you're making me, one of my, one of my other podcast ideas is um, because my mom passed when I was 13, I've realized that I've been able to like idealize what our relationship would have been. Like, oh, she would have been the best grandmother and she would have done this. And it would have been, you know, Disney fairy tale princess type of relationship. But that's probably not true. Um, my sister, I was 13 when our mom passed and my sister was 16 and they were in the oil and water stage that you talked about with you and your mom. Um, and that was really hard for my sister to bear then after our mom passed because she felt like, you know, she was at a rough spot with mom when mom got sick and died. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, I've, I've thought about how I've been able to, you know, I can come up with that whatever kind of relationship I want because there really wasn't ever one in any sort of adult type of form. And I think once you become a mom yourself, you look at things through a different lens. <clears throat> um, um, so I was thinking about your dad. Um, has this changed your relationship at all with him? Has he opened up at all about anything? Um, 
it we're definitely closer I mean I've always been a daddy's girl it's just being the only girl and I don't the middle child I've just we've always had a special relationship but since COVID hit I think before COVID we would call every like every Sunday like we would talk on the phone mm-hmm. and then when my mom went in the nursing home we were talking a little bit more because he would call and let me know how she was doing um and I think because I was the one that had to push I was, I mean, my siblings and I were in total agreement, but my brothers would just kind of say, you're the one that needs to have the conversation. And so I think I feel that pressure of like, okay, now she's in the nursing home. How is she, how is she doing? And so he would call me and update me. And then COVID hit. And the first day that he couldn't go see her anymore, mm-hmm. he would say, he would say things like, well, I'm going to watch you know, at least there's college basketball. I can't go see mom, but then there's college basketball and the college basketball went away. And yeah. I'm, like, oh, I'm a little worried. And then, and then he'd be like, well, basketball went away, but now there's golf and then golf went away. And so I was really worried about his mental health like last March, because I knew going from seeing her every day to being at home on the farm with nothing really to do. Mm-hmm. I was worried. And so we, we've started now, we talk every day on the phone, nine o'clock Eastern time. I'm calling him or he's calling me. It's sometimes it's a race. And there are days when, like, especially last April, June, I was like, um, literally nothing happened today. <laughs> I have nothing to tell you today, but we're at least talking. And so it's been good. And he, you know, he will call me and text me. And we went home at Christmas time and we were able to do window visits at the nursing home. Thankfully, the weather was pretty decent in Iowa. December, you you never know. And it's just, I think it's hard to witness their kind, their love and see how much he loves her um, Mm -hmm. from my viewpoint now as an adult and how it hurts him to be away from her. Their 50th wedding anniversary was in um, August, August 9th. And so we did like a drive-by 50th wedding anniversary where he was outside the window and she was on the other side and it's funny because we had a big celebration for their 40th um we did a full party at the church with cake and punch and um no real like no one else in our family had ever really celebrated the 40th like that maybe my grandparents but none of my mom's sisters and so we just decided we were gonna have a big party and celebrate looking back now I'm I'm really glad that we did Mm -hmm. but um it's just the cutest thing my dad will take 30 pictures every time he goes to the window of her sitting in her wheelchair and she'll fall asleep a lot and so the the cutest thing to me now is there's another person in the nursing home we don't even know her name but she probably doesn't get many visitors and she'll start waving at my dad and he will wave back and this woman will get ridiculously excited and so when my my dad or my mom is sleeping my dad will be like, oh, I'll just, I'm going to go wave at this person over here because they get so excited. And so just to see him, mm. you know, it's just fun to watch his interactions. And then when my mom, like he'll come back to my mom and she'll smile and he'll be like, did you see that smile? Oh, that's just the best thing ever. And like, it's just, um, I'm very fortunate to see that kind of love between yeah. my parents and to see the way he cared for her for so long um, without complaining, without bitterness, Um, It took a toll on him physically, but um, his love for her is just, it's like his greatest gift to us um, is just to watch that. And so we talk every day and hopefully sometime in the next, I don't know, six months, maybe he can get back in to, to see her. And it's funny because we had kind of, I shouldn't say we, I mean, when we put her in the nursing home, we said we didn't want heroic measures. Um, to save her life because of, you know, she's in advanced stages of Alzheimer's or dementia and then COVID hits Mm -hmm. and suddenly we Mm -hmm. were, wait a minute, like, because in my head, um, I pictured what happened when my grandma died, all of her daughters came back and were around her bedside and sang to her and they kind of like sang her out of the world. And so in my head, Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, when, you know, thinking if mom gets an infection or something happens, we were okay with it if all of our sisters, I shouldn't say, I'm speaking for myself. I don't know how my dad feels. Um, I was okay with it if they could all come back and you know be with her for the last days and sing to her and be together. And so when COVID hit and suddenly you're like, no, she's gonna be alone. Yeah. Like 
that's that's a whole other reckoning because all of a sudden you're wishing for her to survive and get through it so that eventually she can have the death that you pictured which that's probably like messed up in its own way but um so that has been a total like interesting contradiction as well mm-hmm. but yeah it's definitely something that you know as a girl i would not have you know like nobody in our family had alzheimer's and so okay. that's kind of why we uh-huh. all think that maybe it was related to her lung um but I can't say it doesn't, you know, enter my mind when I have trouble searching for a word or I, you know, I'm like, oh, is, you know, am I going down the same path? So um, mm-hmm. it's definitely, definitely interesting for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and also with that lung condition and COVID, I mean, especially in the beginning when, you know, the first version of COVID that was here was such a, was such a respiratory invasion. Um, right. I can imagine how that was a, a real concern. Has the yeah, re- I mean, nursing home been shut down the whole time? Like since the last- nursing home has been shut down since I believe the first week of March last year to visitors. And really? The whole time? Mm-hmm. They've been able to do out, they were able to do outdoor visits in summer okay. when the weather was nice. Like they had a gazebo with like a screen down the middle with um, window screen. And then my dad and I and could be on one side and my mom could be on the other. Um, and my dad will stand, even though it's winter, he will stand outside in, you know, 20 degree weather for an hour because he won't leave her if she's sitting in her chair and he won't leave her sitting there by herself. And if no, no worker walks by for 20 minutes, he's standing there with her until he can flag somebody down to let them know he's leaving. Cause he, he won't leave her just looking at nothing. So wow. for Christmas, my brother got him some fleece lined jeans so he could stand at the window in in January and February and be and be warm so Mm -hmm. but yeah and I I was thinking too when you were you know I know you like advice and I don't always feel like I have great advice but one thing that was really hard for me was I would go to see my mom and I would come back and people would be like how's your mom doing (laughs) and that question is so loaded for somebody with a degenerative disease because like I would have to stand there and be like, do they really want to know how she's doing? Or do they just want me to say she's fine? Because she's like, every time you go home, it would be something worse. And it would be something, I would see something new that she couldn't do. Um, And so like I was thinking, like I even did a blog post. I had a blog that I only posted to like twice, but I posted about this. And I said, I said, you know, ask me something like, what did you notice about your mom this time? Or what was the best part of your visit? Um, because mm-hmm. just that question of how is she doing? And every time I want to be like, well, honestly, she's kind of crappy. Thanks for asking. Like, it was just, ne- I mean, it was never going to be good. Because um, mm-hmm. generally mm-hmm. they're not, you know, they're not stable for, for too long. And then my husband Um, at one point fairly early in the journey, you know, I was having a day where I was feeling pretty sorry for myself and um, I'm sure I was crying. And, but I want to, it was probably a little bit of tough love, but he basically said, you have to start celebrating only the current moment. You, you can't keep thinking about what you've lost because you'll never get out of that. You have to only celebrate where your mom is right now and what she can do today and not focus so much on what you've lost. And that was really good advice because it's hard. I mean, it's not easy. There are some days when I'm still like, oh, I just want to talk to my mom and she's here, but I can't. And so that was, you know, I guess I married the right person. That was some pretty good advice. It is. The present is a present. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yes. Huh. That's very good advice. Well, I love to, um, what you said about, you know, um, there's a thing called platitudes is what, when people say the wrong thing, usually after a death, you know, um, that doesn't, is not, doesn't bring a warm, fuzzy feeling to the recipient. So what you're saying about giving advice on ways for people to ask how you're doing besides that specific generic question which could be a catch-all for so many things I really like that type of advice 
because um, that's the only thing that we can do for each other is try to figure out the best ways to support each other on these journeys. Um, and so I think what you're what you're sharing is phenomenal, and that it's not something that I think people think of a lot because they are, have this this perception of you know your mom being gone physically, no longer at on this world, um, but your mom is. So yeah, I really appreciate and I would also you. say take all the videos and take all the pictures. I wish I had done more of that earlier in her diagnosis when she was still able to communicate with us. Mm -hmm. um, because it's interesting, I just came across a card actually the day before my birthday this year. We moved, and so I'm going through boxes, and I found a card. It was actually two typewritten pages of things she wrote to me on my 25th birthday, and so to it was so striking because I haven't heard her voice in so long, mm -hmm. and so to see like the just these string, you know, the whole string of text and her thoughts and. It was just such a gift to find that. And I should say too, this is kind of, I was, I meant to say this at some point in the story. My mom was, I don't want to call her a hoarder. She was not a hoarder. She was a collector of lots of things, antiques of many varieties. But especially after her own parents died, um, there were always auctions going on, farm auctions, people, you know, having sales. And she could not bear to watch people sell family items so she would go to other people's sales and buy their stuff and then bring it home and now i'm going well which stuff is our like family stuff and which stuff is somebody else's but it's just so ironic to me now that even my dad's house to this day is just it's stuffed to the gills and none of that helped her remember when it came down to it mm -hmm. the memories are not in the tangible stuff the memories are in your heart and in your mind. And so now we're left with a house full of stuff that my dad laughs now. He's like, well, you're going to have to, it's going to be your problem someday. And I'm like, okay, great. So yeah. So yeah, definitely those memories, the photos and um, video are, are what's really priceless, not any of the stuff. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like you said, your biggest gift is the, is being able to witness um, the love story that they share like that's a what a blessing yeah. that that is um, and uh, you know she has to still uh, well I mean I don't know if she still feels the love or not but to know to to be loved like that to that yeah. extent of, I think she um, does she's like they'll say um, the first time my dad had to have a phone conference for her care after he couldn't go to the nursing home anymore it was probably late March and they did a phone conference and they put it on speaker and they said, Oh, Maury, when she heard your voice, she just lit up. Aww. And so like he texted me right away. And, you know, like that is what, you know, keeps him going. I think when he, mm -hmm. when he gets to the window and he can see her again and she smiles, you know, that's all he needs, which I think we all, you know, want that kind of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's making me think of a movie. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> Yeah, like the movie. notebook kind of, you know, yeah. like it's, it's yeah. kind of like that, but yeah. you know, uh -huh. and it's, you know, it is, it's interesting because everybody's Alzheimer's journey is different. You know, some people I know their personalities change and that makes things hard. Mm -hmm. um, some people can still speak even till the, to the end, whereas that was the first thing to go for my mom. So mm -hmm. it's different dimension. Alzheimer's is different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And and people also handled traumatic situations like that differently. Um, you know, granted that your dad is a farmer, he's obviously got a very strong work ethic. Um, and a lot of free time other than like two months a year, he's got yeah. lots of free time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the fact that he has, you know, um, whole gone all in and participating with her journey and with her treatment and continuing to love her when and taking care of her for six years like I mean that's tremendous a lot of people can't handle that level of commitment um to a to a disease like that not necessarily to the person but to the to the treatment and the disease so wow 
Well, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us oh, today. Thank you. I want to give you a little time to share where people can find you because you also have a job <laughs> that you do. I have lots of jobs. I'm still <laughs> trying to figure that out, which it's kind of funny because in the letter that my mom, that I found just last month, because I've left, I was a teacher also, I followed in my mm -hmm. mom's and my aunt's footsteps and I had to resign last year about this time for us to move. And so I've just been trying all kinds of things. I'm a health and nutrition coach. I teach, do teach online. I teach some um, preschool level classes online. Um, but as I was kind of stepping away from my traditional teaching job in this letter from my mom, I noticed she had put at some, she's like, you're a wonderful mom. You're a wonderful teacher. She's like, but we'll love you no matter what you do. And so wow. that was kind of like what I needed to hear exactly in this moment, because I am not doing the traditional thing anymore. So um, mm -hmm. I don't even know where to find me some days. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm having a So the a teacher brain. in your pocket, is that not a thing? Well, I am doing that some. Okay. But okay. I am also doing some health and nutrition coaching and I'm on Instagram at underscore um, mindset macros and muscles. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. And any handle for the teacher in your pocket, if anybody teacher has... in your pocket.com, I have a website okay. for that. Okay. So yeah. Which yeah. is providing resources for families and things yes, trying to navigate needs, this whole. Anybody needs help with you know, like curriculum or just how to help their kids focus better, concentrate better while at home. Yep. So yeah, I do a little of everything. Okay. So I'm a jack of all <laughs> trades. Good, good. Well, I'll make sure that I put that information in the show notes too. If anybody awesome. wants to um, find out how to how to reach you, we'll put that information in. And the even show if notes. anybody just wants to talk about their own journey with Alzheimer's, um, mm. I'd love to talk to other people. So. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks sure. again for being here and for being so honest. We really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in being interviewed for a podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.